As I come up here this morning, the words of Psalm 122, verse 1, come to mind. And that verse says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of Yahweh. And there is nothing that brings more joy than coming to worship together uh, the King of kings and the God of gods in the place where his people come together to worship him. And so I am so glad to be here to worship with you all and to open the word of God with you and see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. So let us just pray as we get started and ask the Lord to bless this time and to help us to understand. Our Father in heaven, you are king over all. You sit enthroned in the heavens and you rule all things by the power of your word. Your word is perfect, and you have something to teach us this morning. Help us to have ears to hear your word. Help us to do your word and to love you more because of it this morning. Amen. Well, as we begin, you can open in your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Kings. We will be studying a passage in the book of 2 Kings this morning, and as you work on turning there, I just want to start with a question for everyone. Whose team do you want to be on? Whose team do you want to be on? And this is a question that can apply to a lot of different contexts and different scenarios. Uh, For example, if we're lining up uh, for fun to play a game of ultimate frisbee or flag football or something like that, or maybe pick up basketball, or even in video games. And the question would be posed, which which team do you want to be on? Whose team do you want to join? Or what team do you want to be chosen to play on? And usually the way you would choose that is you'd try to find a person who has unique ability in that particular sport or game or competition who can just decimate everyone else at that activity. Because if if, if you're on their team, that you're going to win. So for example, basketball, if you have someone that's like 7'2 and can dunk with their eyes closed... You want to be on that person's team for the basketball game because you know if you're on their team, they're going to score tons of points. They're going to just decimate the competition and you're going to win. Uh, In video games, you have people with different abilities and weapons and defenses and whatnot. If you have someone with like this overpowered, totally OP weapon or armor or whatever, you don't want to be against that person because you're going to get wiped out. You want to be on that person's team so that you wipe out the enemy, so that you wipe out whoever you're against in that game. And so the way that you would decide whose team you want to be on is who has the best ability in this contest, who is most qualified to beat the competition. And so we're talking about games and competitions and stuff like that, but what about real life? Have you ever thought about this in terms of real life and and what is the most OP ability in the world? Like someone, if if, if a person could do this, that they couldn't be beat in anything, what would that be? And I think that there actually is something like that. I'm going to say that that is the power of being able to say something and it happens just the way you say it. This person can say, uh, let's have this happen right here. And that thing just happens. Or they can even predict the future and it happens just the way they say. You can literally say like, let all my enemies be defeated and they would just be gone. And so the person who has this ability by the power of a word to do anything they want would be the person who has the most power and authority in the universe. They could do anything they want. There's nothing that could come against that. And of course, you're probably picking up on this, that 
there is such a one who has this ability, who has the power of an unstoppable and unbeatable word who speaks and it comes to pass. And that is the God of scripture. That is the God of scripture. It is Yahweh of hosts. He is the one who speaks and it happens. He commands and it is so. And he declares and there is nothing that can stop his will. This is the power of the God of scripture. Every outcome he predicts, it perfectly comes to pass. Every obstacle easily removed. Every opposition decidedly squashed. This is the power of the God of scripture. And he rules and he commands and he accomplishes all things by the power of his unfailing word. His word is certain and has all authority. And that's what we're going to learn from the passage that we're studying, this awesome passage in the book of Kings that we're studying this morning. And so to understand all of this, though, we need a little bit of context, because I asked you to open to 2 Kings, but we're actually dropping right into the middle of a book. Because First and Second Kings were actually originally one book. The only reason there are two books in your Bible is because when it was originally written, things were written on big scrolls, like uh, animal skins beaten out and laid out, and, and scribes would write on those, and you would run out of space on one scroll and have to move to a second scroll to continue the story. That's the case with First Kings. It's one book, one complete whole but two books in your Bible just because there simply wasn't enough space on one scroll to keep it all. So we're parachuting right into the middle of a book here. And so I want to tell you a little bit about what the book of Kings is about. Why does the book of Kings exist? And I want you to understand that it's not just a boring history and chronology about certain kings who reigned and did things and died and move on. And it's, it's not just a boring history book. This is a book that is rich in theology because its purpose is to teach you something about God. The purpose of the book of Kings is to teach you something about God. Now, it was written during the exile. It was written during the exile to the exiled Jews in Babylon to give them hope and understanding of why they were there. They're asking the question, why are we here in exile? God had made so many good promises. He had promised in Genesis 3.15 that he was going to give a seed of the woman who was going to crush the head of the serpent, defeating sin forever. He had promised Noah in Genesis 9 that he was going to accomplish a final and full rest, rest from all the toil and trouble of this world. He promised in Genesis chapters 12 through 15 to Abraham that Abraham would have a land, a specific land, descendants that outnumbered the sand of the seashore and the stars of heaven, and blessing would flow through these people to the nations, land, seed, and a blessing for all of the world through these people. And in Genesis 49, we saw that, was, that seed was going to come through and, and, and there would be a king from that seed. Genesis 49.10 says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah and the ruling staff from between his feet. And that's referring to a king who will rule perfectly forever. And in 2 Samuel 7, God promises David an amazing Davidic covenant, this promise that he would raise up a king after David who would rule perfectly with full justice, that enemies would be completely defeated, rest on all sides, a prosperous kingdom forever and ever. And so the people are sitting in exile in Babylon, serving a foreign nation. Where is the land? Where are all the descendants? Where is this king that God had talked about? Has God forgotten his good promises to us? 
Has he failed to keep his word? And so we need the book of Kings because it is written to answer that question in the book of Kings says on the contrary, God has been perfectly faithful to his word. Everything is happening exactly how it is supposed to. So even in your life right now, if you're thinking things are out of control, either in my personal life or in the world, governments, things going on, what's going on? What's going on with God's promises? Are they going to be accomplished? This book says they will because God's word is certain and authoritative and he can accomplish everything he desires. And so to understand that a little bit more as we see why did the people go into exile? Let's look at what a king is supposed to look like, what a true king is supposed to look like who reigns by God's word. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 17 quickly, please. Deuteronomy 17, and there's a few things that a king is not supposed to do. He's in verses 16 and 17 of Deuteronomy 17. They're not supposed to multiply for themselves wives or war horses or wealth. And the reason for that is because they're supposed to trust wholly in God. And don't trust in horses, trust in God for military support. Don't trust in wealth, trust in God to provide for you. And don't trust in the foreign alliances that you make by acquiring wives from foreign nations. Trust in God to keep you secure in your country. This is what a king was supposed to do. But overall, the requirement of a king who would rule over Israel. Because, by the way, Israel was never meant to be a monarchy. It is always a theocracy ruled by God. And even when there are kings in Israel, they are meant to rule by God's word and be an extension of who God is as king over them to the people. That's what a king is supposed to be. And we see that in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18 which says, and it will be, this is talking about the king, that when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life so that he might learn to fear Yahweh his God in order to keep all the words of this law and these statutes in order to do them. The most important qualification for a king is that he would rule by God's word, that he would cling to God's word and that he would obey God's word, lead by the principles in God's word. That's what a king over Israel is meant to look like. And if I could recap Deuteronomy chapter 28, we see another set of promises and predictions in Deuteronomy 28, which is, blessings and curses that God announced before the people, before they went into the land of Israel. And if I were to recap it very briefly, it would be something like this. The people would be blessed and prosperous and things would go well for them and God would provide for them and protect them and be kind to them if they listened carefully to the voice of Yahweh to keep his word. And then the second part of the chapter, which is actually about three times longer then the blessing section is the section of curses and what will happen to God's people if they reject God's word and disobey and go after other gods and fail to follow after Yahweh. And what, we'll, what we see is that he says the enemies will surround them and crush them and there will be famine and no rain and the earth won't produce its good fruit for them and they will be scared everywhere they go and they will be exiled and enslaved to nations that they did not know. And that's exactly what happened to this people because of their sin. And so Kings is showing, hello, I know exactly why you're here. And it's according to the word of Yahweh who promised that this is what was going to happen. 
And so that's what this book of Kings is doing. And so really, it's not about just a bunch of kings who have their rule in Israel. Really, It's about the idea that the word of Yahweh reigns. The word of Yahweh reigns. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can get in the way. Nothing can make it turn aside. It's like a speeding train on a track that's already been determined, going straight ahead quickly. Nothing can derail it. Nothing can take it away. Anything that you set in front of it is simply a pile of feathers that will be obliterated as it passes through. Everything happens exactly according to this word. And so we see that the kings who listen to Yahweh the nation prospers under them. And we saw that under David and Solomon and and the golden age of Israel as everything was well with them. Enemies did not bother them. There was peace and prosperity. Even says that stones, silver was more plentiful in the land than stones during Solomon's reign. Great prosperity and peace. But then he sinned and the kingdom was split and torn out of his hands. And we see a string of kings. There's two kingdoms now, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the kings there, we follow them back and forth through kings and asking the question, is this king going to listen to God's word or reject God's word? And the kings who listen, the nation prospers a little bit under their rule. But those who abandon God's word, the nation crumbles under them. And eventually, you know the story, they get sent off into exile according to the authoritative and certain word of God. And we're going to look more in detail about what that looks like in Second Kings chapter 1. And so as we look at this, I'm going to give you uh, this this recap of what this passage teaches in three headings, okay? We're going to have the setting We're going to look at the, it's a story, it's a narrative. So we're going to have a setting, then we're going to have the actual story, and then I'm going to tell you the significance for your life. The setting, the story, and then the significance for your life. And as we start, like I said, we're parachuting in the the middle of a book here. So I asked you to open to 2 Kings. We're actually going to start in 1 Kings 22, verse 52. The last few verses of 1 Kings are going to open this up for us. And we're going to look at the setting the author gives us a little recap of the king's rule to tell us what we should expect to learn from his rule. And so let's see, did this, did this king that we're going to look at today, his name is Ahaziah, did he disobey or obey the word of God and what happened with that? And what does this say about people and what does this say about God's word? And so let's look at this. Verse 52, Ahaziah the son of Ahab, reigned over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel for two years. And by the way, as we walk through this, every detail in the Bible is important. Every word is important because it was specifically chosen by God to teach something to us. And so we need to pay attention to details. I can't point out everything, but I'll try to point out the most important ones. The first that I chose to point out is that he ruled for two years. And we see that this is actually a short reign. In fact, if we look back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, at the end of that chapter about how the king needs to write the the word of the Lord and to keep it with him, there's a promise that, that he keeps God's commandments and he doesn't turn away from the right or to the right or to the left, that he may prolong the days of his kingdom. And so... If you have a short reign, it shows that you have not honored the word of the Lord. And we see that this king rules two years. And it's actually in real time closer 
to less than one year, which is kind of crazy. But the way they did timing in, in the Old Testament is they would say, if a king ruled in one year and another year, they would count it as two years. So it's like, if you started being king in 2021, like a couple weeks ago, and you reigned for three or four weeks into 2022, that would count as two years because you were king in 2021 and in 2022. But really, when you compare this to the reigns of the other kings in here, you see that he's actually only reigning for less than a year. Very short reign. And so we see already sort of foreboding that this is not going to go well for him. Verse 53, what does that say? And he did the evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And he went, he walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. So not only short reign, which shows that he disobeyed the word of the Lord, but we see that he did what was evil in God's eyes. And who are these people? His father, his mother, Jeroboam. This is the combination of the wickedest people in Israel so far. His father was Ahab. And listen to what the Bible says about Ahab. Ahab, the son of Omri, did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, more than all who were before him. And now it happened as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. And by the way, Jeroboam, it also said that he was the evil, the most evil that, that had come until him. And so we have Jeroboam, extremely evil king, Ahab, even more sinful than Jeroboam, that he also took Jezebel, the daughter of Etbaal, king of the Sidonians, as a wife, foreign wife, who worships Baal, Jezebel. So Ahab and Jezebel are like the evil power couple of the Old Testament, extremely evil, extremely against God and his word, and matching up with Jeroboam, who is an extremely evil king. And Ahaziah, he walks in the way of all three of them. He is like the ultimate evil combo of all the wickedest people. And this is starting to sound like a, like a supervillain or something. And it really is, but I'm, I will remind you, this is real life. This is not just a story. This is what really happened. This is who he really was. And so what did that sin look like? Verse 54, and Ahaziah served Baal and worshiped him and provoked Yahweh, the God of Israel to anger in all the same ways that his father had done. And so basically here's the setting. Well, there's one more thing. We have to go into verse one of, of, of of 2 Kings 1. And Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And this is just showing the kingdom falling apart. Enemies are coming in. They're encroaching because they see that Ahab dies. Ahaziah looks like a weak king already. Let's rebel. Kingdom falling apart. Weak king. And so the setting, if you're going to see it uh, in sort of a modern way, would be something like this. Once upon a time, there was an extremely wicked king who rules an extremely short time over an extremely weak kingdom and made the true, all-powerful God extremely angry. Things are not going to look good for this king. And so with the setting established, we have to move on to the story, and we're going to walk through the rest of chapter 1 of Second Kings 1. So first, what do we see? That Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room, which was in Samaria, and he became sick. And we have to think in biblical terms here. If someone falls or an accident happens, that was not just seen as an accident or a coincidence. Usually that was seen as some kind of judgment, especially sickness, some kind of judgment from God for sin. And so one of the things that you would want to do is examine your life and see if there's somewhere that you need to repent. And and if you could, maybe ask God what you need to do to repent, to please him again, to seek out his word. So we're wondering, what is Ahaziah going to do in this predicament? Well, let's look. Second half of verse one, 
or verse two, sorry. And he sent messengers and he said to them, go inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, whether I will live from this sickness of mine. And as soon as we see the word inquire, it's the word seek out to make careful questioning into, to really try to figure something out. It's always used in a context like this to seek out the word of Yahweh, to see what an all-powerful God has to say about this situation, to learn what he would want me to do in this situation. And so it should shock the readers, and it would have shocked them to see that he sought out Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. That's crazy. That's foolishness. There is no one who knows all things and who can predict all things with certainty like Yahweh. And yet he sought out Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, whether he would live or not. And then look what happens. An angel of Yahweh spoke to Elijah the Tishbite. And if you were really going to translate this literally, you would say, meanwhile, a messenger of Yahweh had spoken to Elijah the Tishbite. So God is in complete control of this situation. He had already sent his own messenger to combat Ahaziah's messengers, already working in this plan to show something, to show something in real history about who he is and about what his word is like. And so God sends his messenger to Elijah and he says, get up, go up to meet the messengers of the king of of Samaria and speak to them. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to seek out Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says Yahweh, the bed which you have gone up upon, you will not come down from it, for you will surely die. And even in this indictment, we see more authority of God's word. Obviously, thus says Yahweh shows that it is authoritative and profound, but even the way the sentence is ordered in the original Hebrew, the first thing is the bed which you have gone up upon You will not come down from it, but you will surely die. Do you see how surely die was placed at the very end? This is very suspenseful. We're leading up to a a big verdict or conclusion. And whenever that's the case, the person who has the information, who can string out suspense like that, is the person who has authority over the situation. They know something you don't know, and they can hold it out in suspense like that. So even the word order of a sentence like this can show the authority and certainty of God's word as he is the one in control of this situation. You will surely die, he says. And so our question is, what's what's the king going to do to this? Elijah went his way. The messengers returned. And this is interesting too, that the king had given orders. Go to Ekron, go to Baal, inquire of him and come back. And instead, Elijah met these messengers and he commanded them by the word of the Lord to go back. And who did they listen to? Who was the higher authority? They didn't listen to the king. They didn't continue on their journey. They listened to Yahweh's word because his is the one that has authority. And so the king asks, they came back to the king and the king said, why have you come back so soon? What what is this that you have returned? Because it was, it was a 90-mile round trip that these guys had to walk, and they came back pretty quick. So he's like, what's going on here? And they said to him, a man came up to meet us, and he said to us, go, return to the king who sent you, and speak to him, thus says Yahweh. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, the bed which you have gone up upon, 
You will not come down from it, for you will surely die. What is the king going to do with this news? He has just received a word from heaven, the authoritative word of God. What is the right thing to do in this circumstance? What is the right thing for you to do when you hear the word of the Lord? You would expect that someone confronted with such great power and authority would submit and bow and say, you're right. I have no business seeking false gods, looking elsewhere for answers. The Lord alone has the true word. I need to listen to him. But what did the king do? It says, and he spoke. And he spoke. He's talking back to God. He's deciding in his heart right now, I'm going to talk back to God. I'm going to fight this. I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to try to reverse this decision. Do you see how prideful and arrogant that is? So he spoke to them and he said, what was this man like who went up to you? This, this had to be some crazy powerful man, right? If, if you're going to disobey the king, what kind of man was this who went, who went up to, to meet you and spoke these things to you? And they said, he was a man of hair, with a leather belt girded about his waist. Weird description, right? And yet it was a very unique description. By the way, man of hair most likely refers to the fact that he was wearing a hairy garment. And that's going to be important for later. But he is a man in a hairy garment with a leather belt. And this is a very distinct description. But look at what the king says. It is Elijah the Tishbite. He was famous he knew exactly who this was simply by a description. And, I, and I'll bet that, that the messengers also knew, and they didn't even have to say his name. It might have even been offensive to the king. Elijah means my God is Yahweh. They didn't say Elijah. They said a man in a hairy garment with a leather belt. And the king knew exactly who that was because this Elijah was famous for being able to speak of the authoritative word of the Lord. And whatever he said happened. Even a child was raised from the dead by Elijah's prayers by the word of the Lord. And so everything that Elijah said, it came to pass. And when you hear about this Elijah saying something, a message of judgment against you, you know that that's going to happen. And so what do we see from this reaction? Finally, maybe the king is going to get the message. This is Elijah. His, he speaks for Yahweh. His word never fails. What's going to happen here? Oh no, he's going to go toe to toe. He's going to go for an extreme battle against the word of the Lord. He's going to battle against the word of the Lord. He doesn't like what Yahweh said. By the way, who in the world, what kind of person can go up against a holy God? This is absolute folly and foolishness. None of us can go up against the word of the Lord. But verse nine, and the king sent to Elijah a captain of 50 and his 50. And this captain, so by the way, this is, a, this is an army. This is a captain of 50 soldiers going up to Elijah. This is, this is not just like a welcome party to welcome the, the Elijah into the king. This is like, we need to arrest this guy with power. Obviously, he's got some authority here. We need to, to arrest him with power, probably going to execute him when he gets there. That would make sense with this storyline. We want to silence this messenger of Yahweh, plug our ears, shout, not listen to whatever God is trying to say through this man. I want to silence God's message, so I'm going to kill his messenger. That's what they want to do here. And so he sends the captain of 50. The, the captain of 50 goes up to him and behold, what does it say? He is sitting 
on the top of the mountain. Behold, you're supposed to pay attention to this. What do you know about the tops of mountains? Well, in scripture, God speaks from the top of a mountain many times. In Sinai, God delivered the law to the people of Israel from the top of the mountain. At Mount Carmel, Elijah had this amazing showdown with the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel and showed that Yahweh, he is God. He is the one whose word is true. And later on, by the way, we're going to see Jesus go up and give a sermon, what? On the mount, on top of the mountain. God speaks from the top of the mountain. And so, hello, we are going to see something powerful speech from God from the top of this mountain. What does the captain of 50 say? He says to Elijah, O man of God, the king says, come down. Do you see what's going on here? He just tried to command God. Elijah is a prophet who stands in for Yahweh. He is a prophet who speaks the word of God. If you're trying to silence a prophet, if you're trying to do something to a prophet, it's seen as you're doing that to Yahweh of hosts. You're doing that to almighty God. And if he's saying, the king says, come down, who does the king think is in authority here? Who does the king think is in charge? He thinks it's himself. He's trying to command God. Don't we do that when we try to enforce our own way? When we know what God's word says and we continue to walk according to our own path? And we continue to pursue our own desires and lusts and the things that that we think will be better for us rather than what God's word says. Don't pridefully put down the word of God. It will not go well for you to do so. And so what was Elijah's reply? Elijah answered and spoke to the captain of 50. And if I am a man of God... Fire will come down from heaven and devour you and your 50. What do we know about the word of God? God speaks and it happens just the way he said. He said, if I am a man of God, fire will come down from heaven and devour you and your 50. Next part of the verse. And fire came down from heaven and devoured him and his 50. 51 human beings consumed by fire instantly by the word of the Lord. What's the king going to do to answer this? What is he going to do next? Is he finally going to humble himself? Verse 11. And again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50. What arrogance. And he answered, it says. This captain of 50 answered back to God again. And he answered. And he said, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. Wow. Not only from the first time when he just said the king says, now he says, thus says the king. Not only did he say, come down the first time, now he says, come down quickly. The king just doubled down. He didn't surrender at all. He said, I'm going to go harder. Guess what God's reply is? And Elijah answered and said to them, said to them, this is 
for everyone to see, for everyone to hear, for everyone to experience. If I am a man of God, fire will come down from heaven and devour you and your 50. And there's a distinct word here that we see added on. And the fire of God came down from heaven and devoured him and his 50. Now, if there was any question the first time, whether this was just a fluke, you know, we've been having firestorms lately, doesn't even make any sense. But this is decidedly the fire of God coming down and consuming another 50 soldiers and their captain. That's 102 humans devoured by fire before the Lord. But what's wrong? Weren't they innocent? Weren't they just doing the king's bidding? Well, that's exactly the problem. Whose word did they obey? Whose bidding did they follow? Did they listen to a wicked king or to an almighty God? It's the same thing for us. Who are you listening to? Who are you obeying? Whose advice are you following? If it is not the true and authoritative word of God, it is the wrong advice. It is complete disobedience and rebellion. And so these 102 soldiers rightfully died in the presence of the Lord when they opposed his will. What's the king going to do now? 102 soldiers down, not making any headway. Verse 13, and again, he sent a third captain of 50 with his 50. This is amazing rebellion. This is crazy. This is complete insanity. What is insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting the same result. By the way, Proverbs 27:22. What a fitting verse for this. Though you pound an ignorant fool in a mortar with a pestle in the midst of crushed grain, his folly will not turn aside from him. That is what the unsaved, unregenerate human heart looks like. So hardened, so wicked that it can't even realize that it needs to wake up and submit to a higher power and authority who is Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh needs to renew your heart to speak life into your deadness for you to be able to submit to him. It's amazing to see that in a text like this. And so we have a third captain of 50 with his 50. What is he going to do? Is this going to be any different? Well, he doesn't answer. First of all, it says he went up. We already see a difference. And he comes. That's interesting too. He didn't go from the king, he came to Elijah. We're seeing things from God's perspective a little bit more now. This third captain of 50, and he knelt on his knees before Elijah and begged for mercy before him. This, my friends, is the correct response to the authority of God's word. You see all-powerful, holy God who is serious about holiness, who is serious about you keeping his word, and he displays with mighty power his seriousness about obedience. And the only thing that sinners can do is fall on their knees before him and beg for mercy that you would have compassion, O Lord, and not consume me like I deserve. And what does this captain say? He says, May my life and the life of these, your 50 servants, be precious in your sight. 
And he recounts what happened in the past. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the earlier two captains of 50 and their 50. But now may my life be precious in your sight. And the messenger or the angel of Yahweh comes up again. He spoke to Elijah, go down with him. Who does Elijah obey? He obeys the Lord, not some human king. And he is not obeying this second captain, this third captain of 50 either. He is obeying God who says, go down with him. Do not be afraid of his presence. So Elijah got up and he went down with him to the king. What's going to happen now? The king finally gets Elijah in his chamber. And Elijah spoke to him and he said, thus says Yahweh, because you have sent messengers to seek out Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, is it because there's no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, the bed which you have gone up upon, you will not come down from it, but you will surely die. And he died according to the word of the Lord, which was spoken by Elijah. And Jehoram reigned in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah didn't have a son. And the rest of the deeds of Ahaziah, all that he did, are they not written in the scroll of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? It's a little bit anticlimactic, right? He said, you're going to die, and he just died. But what else did you expect? There is no answer from the king. The king couldn't say anything to God. He was completely useless. By the way, he's, helped, he's, he's gotten sick. He's on a sick bed. He can't even get up. He probably can't even sit up. And he's trying to command God. And so Elijah finally comes to him and says, you're going to die. And he dies. It's as simple as that. And what does that tell us about the previous times that he's been sending these soldiers to go get him? Is he making any headway? Is he delaying God's judgment? No, rather, God has been extremely merciful and patient with King Ahaziah. He could have said, you're dead, and he would have died in that instant. But instead, he gave him one, two, three opportunities to humble himself and repent before the Lord. Even like his father, Ahab, when Yahweh prophesied evil about the end of Ahab's reign in his life, in 1 Kings 21, 27, it says this, now it happened when Ahab heard these words, he had, he had a word of judgment from Yahweh, that he tore his clothes this is the wickedest king that ever lived, by the way, King Ahab. He tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and fasted and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Then the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me. I will not bring evil in his days, but I'll bring evil upon, the house, upon his house in his son's days. And so Yahweh is so abundantly patient and merciful to sinners who rebel against his word. This is good news for us as sinners. You have a chance today to repent of your sin and to listen to the word of Yahweh, to come under it in submission and worship and to obey it in holiness. And so we've seen the setting of this story and we've seen the whole story. And, and by the way, there, there, there are other things that Ahaziah did. We saw the rest of the things that Ahaziah did. You could read about them in, in this other book that was recorded in history. But what was important to God to record was whether or not he obeyed God's word. And so the significance now, thirdly, what does this mean for your life? 
What does this mean for your life? Well, I'm sure throughout the preaching of the word that the spirit has already been revealing to you some ways that you need to submit to him, that you need to submit to his word. But the ultimate application for this is one of worldview. It's one of how do we think about what's going on right now? It was written to exiles in Babylon thinking, why are we here in exile? What about all these promises of sin being crushed, of prosperity, of a king who will rule forever in perfect justice and we'll have peace everywhere and no tears and total prosperity. And that's, that's not forgotten by God. That's what this book is saying. God's word doesn't fail. If he promised those things, they will come to pass. And guess what? Do you remember the robes and the belts that Elijah was wearing, a hairy garment and the leather belt? Can you think of another prophet who wore that same thing? John the Baptist in the book of Matthew wore a garment, a robe of camel's hair and a leather belt. And that's supposed to key you in and go, there's only one other guy who I know dressed like that. And he spoke the word of Yahweh truly and authoritatively. So you know that John the Baptist is going to tell you the truth from God. And so when he points at Jesus Christ and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's the king that you've been looking for. That's the one who is going to rescue you from your sin, from your rebellion against Christ to make your dead, hard heart warm and beating and filled with life to obey Christ and his commandments. This is the king that we need to look for. All the kings and second kings, they failed. They died. They sinned. We need a better king who's going to rule forever and bring true prosperity and peace. And that is the king, Jesus Christ, who came and John the Baptist pointed him out, but his people sadly rejected him. He lived perfectly. He spoke God's word. He lived according to God's word and he suffered and died a sinner's death, though he was righteous because he was paying for the sins of those who would trust in his name, that their sin would be placed upon him and that his righteousness would be placed upon them. And he rose again on the third day, total authority. If he has all the authority in the world, if what he says goes, if he can control nature, if he can control life and death, he has authority to lay his life down and take it up again. And he did. And he is in heaven at the right hand of the Father now and returning to earth quickly to rule for a thousand years and proclaim his victory here on earth and then create a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no tears, where everything will be good, where everything will be prosperous and right and perfect justice and his people will worship and sing to him with full joy. That is where we're headed. That is the word of the Lord that he has promised and predicted, and it will come to pass. And so as we come to the end here, I'll ask again, whose team do you want to be on? Are you going to go your own way? Are you going to follow political leaders, celebrities, sports athletes who are famous? Or are you going to follow the word of the Lord and live in submission to the true king, Jesus Christ, who will reign forever? And so this is a challenge and a warning to those of you who are disobedient to the word. God is giving you a chance. His patience is so extensive and you can repent of your sins and come and bow before Christ and beg for mercy like that third captain. And he will give it to you because all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And if you have received that salvation, then then this passage also gives us great hope that his word will never fail. And that those good promises will come to pass. And we get to look forward to that and praise the king for that. So the word of the Lord, certain, authoritative, 
Submit to it. Rejoice in it. Be glad in Yahweh and that he will accomplish his word through the living and incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how wonderful are your works. How amazing is your word. How powerful and authoritative are you in the heavens. You sit on your throne and rule all things well. We're so thankful that you are coming again to rule perfectly, accomplish perfect justice, put wicked to death ultimately and bring new life to all who trust in you. Thank you for your word and help us to obey you in Jesus' name. Amen.